and welcome to Musicians Weekend, the podcast in which we explore the weird and wonderful lives of those who keep classical music making alive. In this episode, we'll be chatting about recent events in our own lives and in the classical music world, as well as an interview with a special guest. We are three London-based freelancers. I'm Imogen, and I'm a trumpeter. I'm Davina, and I'm a cellist. And I'm Olivia, and I play the harp. We've got some nice tweets in the past fortnight. The first was from Laura Jones, who listened to our last episode where I interviewed director of Wigmore Hall, John Gohooli. Laura said, I would add music publishing as another career option to John Gohooli's non-performance-based career options. So thank you very much to all those listening who are being Maxim Vengarovs in their own right within the industry. And we also got a tweet from friend of the podcast, Anne Denham, the Royal Harpist, who binge listened on a drive to Wales. <laughs> nice one. Uh, I thought I'd start by telling you um, what I've been up to in the past fortnight. Yesterday, I went to play for a corporate event in Newmarket, and I had no idea what I was going to, what it was for. I just assumed it was like reception drinks at the house. Rocked up on a dirt track, and suddenly thought, hang on a sec, Newmarket, the only thing here is horses, horse racing. Where is it? Next to Cambridge. Ah. And um, then I saw a sign for Mr. and Mrs. Dottori deliveries. Frankie Dottori, famous jockey. Anyway, so I was like, well, okay, we go. It's, uh, it's someone, his house. But it wasn't, it was polo. And I'd never seen polo before. Oh, um, it's so, like horse hockey. Yeah. It's amazing. It was basically a, a horse sperm convention. <laughs> that oh, was. Really? Yeah. Oh, big business. Yeah, imagine they trade. Sperm for millions. Yeah. Millions. Yeah, anyway, so there were some very friendly Texans and stuff and it was all fun. The only thing that wasn't fun was a rogue polo ball <gasps> got hit into the marquee and missed me in the heart by oh. honestly oh. twenty centimetres. <gasps> and these balls are massive, they're like twice the size of a cricket ball, really heavy. And it just made me think about all the corporate events I've done where I haven't known what I was rocking up to mm. and it reminded me of a really bad experience I had a few years ago they said the event was in Grosvenor Square but I really did think it meant the hotel like Grosvenor Hotel got there and it was a stage with a poster of me and an A-frame <laughs> next to the stage and deck chairs laid out and it was it was like a recital performance. And they hadn't told you. Had no idea. Oh my god. And I called up the agent and we had we had basically a fight. And she said, I don't think you're cut out for corporate events then if you're not okay to adapt to the situation. Oh. <laughs> this hmm. is yeah. really not okay. But I did it. I just played my horrendous, like cheesy selection of background <laughs> music. Well the people on the lunch breaks probably liked it. I think that's perfect. Yeah. But it was right next to Wigmore Hall. So I was thinking, oh gosh, somebody's gonna come, you know, you're so worried about damaging your your reputation playing air on the G string. <laughs> <laughs> I need to remember to always ask for more information when I book for a corporate event, just in case yeah. I end up in, in a bad situation like that. <laughs> Uh, I also went to see another play in the last fortnight. I'd already spoken about how I didn't enjoy Macbeth and I walked out. So I thought, give another one a go. And I didn't get this one either. And the worst <laughs> thing was, there was no interval so I couldn't leave. Oh, no. And it was full. So I was trapped for an hour and 40 minutes. And I just didn't get it. And everyone seemed to love it. And there are all these people there who probably say theatre. <laughs> instead of theatre. And they were doing this like theater laugh where they like laugh really loudly at the jokes. <laughs> oh, to show. To show I they get, get this. it. I'm like, yeah. maybe it's the same. We've definitely got the equivalent in classical music where people, you know, jump in with a clap. Bravo! As soon as the piece is finished oh, yeah. because they know yeah. it so well. They know, yeah, because yeah. they know it's ended. Um, but I just thought, why are your plays more, why do people perceive them as being more accessible than classical mm. concerts? Because I've definitely got non musician friends who would rather go to plays. Yeah. Well, maybe it's because in plays you have words and you understand the language. Yes. One does understand the language, whereas probably more people would go to a classical music concert and not necessarily understand the language of music. Not that you need to, and we've made that quite clear, yeah. I guess, in our podcast, that you can say what you like about music, you can feel what you like, or not say anything at all, but people feel pressured, I think, to have to like something and maybe it's the same in the theater <laughs> people feel pressured that they need to be seeing that they're enjoying something that is supposedly high culture 
So uh, do you think musicals are the most popular of them all? Because <laughs> there's a bit of both. A bit of both, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Right. Very accessible. Yeah. I can see why people would think there's a language that they need to have some knowledge of for um, new music, new classical mm-hmm. music. And I do get that because I know that there are certain things that I only enjoy listening to because I listen to a lot. So I, I feel like I'm able to probably appreciate it more than somebody who never, ever listens to any yeah. music. Do you think it's weird that we could probably relate to a new play easier because the language is more like how we speak now rather than a Shakespeare play, but people find new music harder to understand perhaps than yeah. classical music? Like it takes several years of musical evolution for people to, to become accustomed and acclimatised to that particular language perhaps. Like how Mozart was such a renegade in his day and now it's so standard. Yeah. <laughs> But then the language from plays 100 years ago, well, the past few hundred years, like two, three, is still the same. Mm. The thing is, with a play, you can tailor it. You know, you can change the setting. You know, there's so many Shakespeare plays where they put it in a modern setting and people relate to that rather than necessarily the words and the poetry that is used. Can you imagine if they did classical concerts with like scene changes like they do for theatre? Oh. Do you think that would help people in yeah, some way? Nice. If they could make it more like a theatre yeah. experience. Well, that's the great thing about opera. That's true. Yeah. Because you've got, you've got everything, mm. except the speaking. Yeah. Although you do have um, recits. Maybe plays just not for you. <laughs> no, I'm going to keep trying. If anybody sees one coming up they think I'd like, please send me a message because I'm desperate to go to something I enjoy at the theatre. Imogen, what have you been up to? Well, I know I mentioned this last time that I was going, so I went to the Jacob Collier prom at the Abbott Hall and it was absolutely awesome. (laughs) He's so incredible. He's 23. Actually, he's the day this comes out, he's 24 tomorrow on the 2nd of August. Happy birthday, Jacob. Happy birthday. Is that creepy that I know that? (laughs) I just looked it up. To be 23 and to have your own prom, I think, is insane. And it was just an amazing mix of music from kind of all different artists. So we had we had Jacob, uh, we had the Metropod Orchestra, conducted by Jules Buckley. We had a singer called Becca Stevens, a banjo player called Sam Amidon, the amazing vocal harmony group from America, Take Six, and also a Moroccan musician called Hamid El Kasri, who plays the Gwembri which is a three-stringed bass lute, mainly found in North African music. And it was him and his kind of four, I want to say like backing singers, but you have to watch it on iPlayer to kind of understand it. The album was just rocking and everyone was just so into it. He has some of Jacob's stuff from his album. You had some new arrangements, some Stevie Wonder. And it ended with All Night Long, Lionel Richie, (laughs) which was great. And... The encore, which I think was probably my favourite bit actually of the whole concert, he did Blackbird by the Beatles. I absolutely love that song. I just tried to vlog it to my friend who's getting married next week and she wanted a Beatles song coming down the aisle. And I said, you have to have Blackbird. But she she wasn't convinced. We were wondering whether we were going to keep it on the iPlayer programme because it was quite long at the end of the concert. But it's all on there. And basically it's just Jacob on his own on his kind of cool vocal harmoniser keyboard thing. And... He makes the whole audience and orchestra sing and he makes you do it in harmony. So he's kind of sections, it's just really clever. It's what we know, the music never stopped. He just kind of, with gestures and with his voice was making you do things. And it was like he had the Albert Hall in the palm of his hand. Yeah, it must've been quite a different vibe from a lot of the other proms that we go to. I mean, the proms has got quite a relaxed sort of environment anyway, but to have that with audience participation as well is quite different. Yeah, everyone was just gripped, and I just think it was just such an exciting thing to be to be watching. So I was just thinking about how, you know, it's a lot of what he's doing is new music, and we're talking, we've been talking about how people sometimes find new music uh, difficult to approach. So what is it, do you think, that he does that makes people want to participate? I, I think probably because he's tapping into a a genre that is well loved, like jazz, mm. right? Jazz and pop influences mm. are accessible, but he's, his harmonies are so complex that, that music geeks are loving it too. So he's kind of got both... It's a bit more inclusive, I guess. Yeah, both audiences loving it. Yeah. Apart from that, I've been doing quite a bit of practice 
but in the sweltering heat that we've got right now and as you girls know we've done a podcast episode in my flat and I live on a top floor flat and it's absolutely boiling and I just feel really guilty to have my windows open at all with the neighbours and yeah. I think the whole street would honestly hear the practicing so um, I have the windows closed and it's been really miserable. Oh, so <laughs> How does the heat affect your instrument? For brass instruments, if they get hot, they go sharp. So you need to pull uh, the slide, the tuning slide all the way out. I think it's the opposite for strings. It is right? the opposite for strings, yes, because I'm doing an opera at the moment, which is basically outside, and all the stringed instruments are going flatter and flatter, and all the wind and brass are going sharper and sharper. As we approach the interval, <laughs> our harmonies are just getting further and further More apart. More Jacob Collier-esque. Yes, that's true. How about you, Davina? What's been going on with you? Well, um, as I mentioned just before, I'm doing an opera out in... Iford Manor, which is in Bradford-upon-Avon, which is near Bath. So it means that I've been doing a lot of driving. It really resonates with me that Anne Denham's been doing a lot of driving on the M4 on the way to Wales. I've, Iford is about two and a half hours away, sometimes three hours. So sitting in the car, actually, it's been quite nice because I've got air conditioning in my car. Oh, okay. I'm jealous. <laughs> I don't. Don't you? I arrive and oh, get my gigs with like, hair in Oh, gosh. <laughs> it is a sanctuary for me. So I get into my car. It's this, this little cold capsule, just like going oh. down the M3, the M4, whatever. And um, it's a wonderful opportunity for me to catch up on some listening in the car. And I just thought, like, I wonder how many people are listening to this podcast right now in their car. Mm. If so, if you're listening... Keep your eyes on the road. Um, remember to take breaks. Tiredness can kill. <laughs> and chewing gum makes you stay awake. And don't use your phone. So I've been doing lots of listening. I revisited the Tchaikovsky symphonies, actually. And I just listened to one to six all the way through. Oh my god! And it was kind of like revisiting milestones from my musical education. So the first Tchaikovsky symphony was the first symphony I played at University Orchestra in Auckland. Number two was the first symphony I ever played in my life with the New Zealand Secondary Schools Symphony Orchestra. Nice. That's NZSSO. Number three, I haven't played, so that's maybe looking to the future. Number four, I think I played in Australian Youth Orchestra Music Camp. Five, we did it in Dalian. Number six, I think I did it in National Youth Orchestra camp as well so I got a bit nostalgic sitting in the car it must have been intense camp. but the last movement of number six is one of my favorite things ever I yeah. absolutely love it so you what a way be. to end I know and it was basically the end of Tchaikovsky's life as well Imogen and I attended Olivia's concert at the VNA that we mentioned in the last couple episodes thanks for coming guys you played incredibly well you a real angel Oh god, yeah, the piece is called Seven Angels, so obviously I wore a white dress. I think what was amazing, I think Imogen, you mentioned this on the day, that you held the whole piece together because you were the only instrumentalist. It was you and two singers. And I just remember thinking, how on earth do you hold an opera together? I love playing with singers because I love the whole breathing aspect of it. And it was quite hard because one of them was sitting in front of me with his back to me and the other one was up on a gallery area behind me so I couldn't see either of them so apart from I could see his sort of shoulders move when he breathed so that was quite fun also I just thought this was quite a nice tip that I got from a well-known singer Mark Padmore we did a Britain canticle together and I was waiting every time he breathed waiting 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 and he said we want to be taken for a walk as a singer keep going basically keep yeah. going so I, I think it's quite fun mm, just having yeah. to yeah, yeah. Take, take a singer for a walk. Yeah, <laughs> like, on the reins. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of some advice I've heard in a masterclass before, which is to make sure that you are walking the trumpet and the trumpet is not, trumpet is not walking you. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to Olivia's concert, it was held in the Florentine Chapel, which is basically kind of an extension of the main foyer. And so a lot of people wandered in by chance um, as it was a free event. And I was looking around and it was just really nice to see a very diverse audience, you know, people who go to the V&A. A lot of tourists just happen to be in that area in South Kensington anyway because there's loads of museums there. It was just really nice to see some people watching something that they maybe otherwise wouldn't have gone to. I also went to a prom in the Royal Albert Hall. I've got a friend visiting from New Zealand at the moment, so we thought it would be a nice thing to do. And actually, it was the first time I'd tried online proming. And if you've never done this before, it's really great if you don't want to stand outside in the sweltering heat queuing for the £6 tickets. 
you can book a prom ticket online. They release a certain number at nine o'clock every morning for that night's prom. It's seven pounds and twelve pence because it includes a booking fee. <laughs> but you're you're guaranteed a spot in one of the proming areas, so you can choose the arena or the gallery. And then you print out your ticket or have it on your mobile device and you get to go through a special line when you get there. So it was wonderful. My friend and I, we rocked up at about quarter past seven. The concert started at 7.30 and we just bypassed all the sweaty people in the line and <laughs> walked all the way up to the gallery. So I'd highly recommend um, online proming. I didn't actually know about it and I found out about it by chance. I guess for some people that would be just sacrilege though because it's such a tradition to stand <laughs> to outside stand all day. Out. And to bring your deck chair and to bring your yeah. picnic. It's just not practical though for people who might be in the office. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. So I think that's a great idea. I think it was brilliant. And it just meant I could do other things during the day. Um, I personally didn't want to stand outside yesterday. It was very hot. Um, the prom was really great. It was the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra and they played a program of Tansy Davies, a new commission called What Did We See? Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 5, The Emperor, Paul Lewis was the soloist, and Brahms's Second Symphony. And I noticed something that was a bit disheartening when my friend and I got up to the gallery and we noticed there were loads of empty seats in the main seating area. And we thought, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if maybe we could sit in one of those seats? And we didn't mind maybe paying a little bit extra. So we spoke to a staff member and the staff member said, oh, yeah, I mean, if you wanted to upgrade, you'd have to pay a little bit extra, go down to the box office. However, unfortunately, a lot of people might come in after the first piece. And I said, why is that? And they said, it's a bit sad, really, but a lot of people book tickets. And they, if they see there's a new piece, a new commission, no. they don't come in until after it's finished. No way. And I just thought that was really, really sad. And unfortunately, it was true. After, after the first piece... A whole lot of people came flooding in for the Emperor Concerto and filled those seats. And I just thought, if you're able to pay top money for those good seats, go to the whole concert. It's not fair. So that just really that just really annoyed me. Yeah. Oh, gross. Then you start playing the contemporary thing then before the interval. How? Like, why? Why do you think you might not like it? You might be pleasantly surprised. Like, you know, give it a go. Um, but it was it was a wonderful concert. There were TV cameras there, so I assume it's going to be on iPlayer, so do check it out. And also, BBC Prom's extra TV programme series has just started, and you can catch up on that on iPlayer. It's hosted by Katie Derham, and our special guests include Jacob Collier and Danielle Denise. One last thing I wanted to bring up. It happened to me a couple of weeks ago, but it's just been featuring my mind quite prominently. I received a text message from an unknown number, and actually an unknown person because they didn't even sign off their text, <laughs> offering me a little patch of work. And they just said, hello, Davina, got your number from so-and-so, can you do this thing? I couldn't do it, so I turned it down, but I also passed on the names of three cellists that I thought would be suitable, which is the common practice, nice thing to do. And they wrote back and said, thank you. Are they graduates from Royal Academy of Music or Guildhall? And that just kind of riled me up because what does it matter? I found it really discriminatory and really exclusive to graduates of just those institutions. I was thinking, I was like, oh, maybe is it an alumni project or something? But then I thought, well, you asked me and you obviously don't know where I studied. I studied in Auckland and I studied in Sydney. So I wrote back and I honestly didn't know which institutions these three cellists had studied in. So I just said... Uh, I don't know, sorry, but just so you know, I'm a graduate of neither of those places. And they just wrote back and said, okay, thank you. Then I saw the same patch of work advertised on a Facebook group calling for orchestral musicians, and they'd extended it to graduates of only Royal College Music, Royal Academy, and Guildhall. So bad. And it re it received a lot of backlash from students of Trinity. Yeah. Uh, not only that, but regional conservatoires as well. So... Birmingham, Scottish, Welsh, or Northern, Northern. Not oh. to mention all the overseas places uh, where <laughs> people study. I, I was quite happy to see it there because I, I just kind of thought, oh, I'm going to get some popcorn and settle in for the comments. But it has since been deleted. But I just thought it's it's quite rude just to say, are you a graduate of this place? Because it doesn't mean you're an incredible musician if you've studied at these place, places and necessarily. Know, and you don't know who asked you. No, who I don't know who that was. Hmm. 
It's really bad. Really bad. Really discriminatory. And it's like, you, well, you obviously asked me without knowing you, I must have a good enough reputation from someone for them to pass on my name. And they've not mentioned where I studied. And it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, what matters is how you play and how you are when you work with people. Yeah. So I just thought, if you're curious about where someone has studied, maybe just ask, where did you study? It's a bit more open-ended than, did you study at this place? I mean, at least if you want someone who's graduated from conservatoire, say conservatoire level or graduate level or something. Yeah. Shout out to all the amazing harpists at Trinity. Fantastic harp department. Mm. <laughs> and people have studied all over the world. Like <laughs> me. Now on to some classical music news. I read an article recently about an opera singer called Charles Castronovo who saved a performance of La Boheme at the Royal Opera House. It was starring his wife, Ekaterina Surina, and he stepped in mid-show to sing the role of her lover when her lover Rodolfo's voice forced him to stop singing. Castronovo, who'd been watching from the audience, stood in and sang the role at the side of the stage while the other guy acted it. Audience members praised the performance as being magical and sensationally romantic. So I just thought that was a really sweet bit of news to throw in oh, there. Oh, <laughs> is there a tenor in the house? But can you imagine having to step in like that? Gosh. If someone just says, help, we need someone to come and... I mean, he'd done the role before, so he yeah. knew it really well. I do think that um, a lot of our opportunities and income as freelancers comes from people stepping out because of illness or personal commitments. So... In a way, I guess, we have to be prepared for that. But we usually have more notice than yeah. when you're sitting in the concert itself. Yeah, you get a whole night's notice. <laughs> yeah, that's, that so that's luxury. <laughs> I went to do a sit-in at the Opera House where we weren't supposed to play, but I just had my trumpet there because I had to go on to something later or I needed my trumpet. And they were quite fussy about the fact that I had my trumpet they were like oh you shouldn't have brought it shouldn't have brought it and I was like, I'm sorry I literally just need to have it and then it just so happened that at the interval of the, it was like a dress rehearsal one of the trumpet players was taken ill and he had to go home and then the conductor was like what are we going to do we need we need another trumpeter and I actually did have my trumpet and they were like oh good you've got your trumpet and I was like oh now you're pleased you know because wow. they were so unhappy about it um and they were like yes okay go get your trumpet and come and play so That's I did actually so get cool. to do it That's cool yeah. Wasn't there um, a woman who worked in the cloakroom at Wigmore Hall, a soprano who yes, stepped in like, yes. recently? Millie Forrest, that was all over the Evening Standard and about then a year ago. From that kind of springboarded her career now, didn't it? Yes, I mean, that was all, that was always my, my hope backstage. I waited five years to be called <laughs> on, on stage to step in for a harpist, but there were so few there, <laughs> it never happened. Yeah, what would be the worst piece do you think to step in on? <laughs> someone said oh, do you think you would admit to being a harpist if someone said we need someone to come and play this really difficult piece the hardest harp part i think is for williams c symphony oh but it's such a mess of notes that actually i probably would just do it and just gliss it so i some anything really exposed mm. and tricky but then you think, do you think you've probably got like a free pass to not play amazingly because they're so grateful you're there anyway? Yeah, maybe it takes the pressure off because you had no Yeah, notice. if it's yeah. not perfect, no one, they won't mind. They'll be like, oh, you're doing so well. Symphony Contastic, if I had to suddenly go in for that and I hadn't practiced it, <laughs> yeah. that one, I wouldn't be so happy. Our special guest this week is my good friend Simone Willis, a PhD researcher in musician stress and well-being at Cardiff Metropolitan University. She is also a systematic reviewer at Cardiff University, a trustee for Orchestras Live and a freelance violinist. We actually met several years ago at the St. Indelian Festival, which all three of us here have participated in the past. And when this episode comes out we will be at the St. Indalian Festival together. So I'm really looking forward to seeing Simone soon. I caught up with Simone recently on a trip to London and we chatted about her research regarding ways to cope with performance anxiety, well-being as musicians, her journey as a performer and a researcher, and developing a diverse set of skills. One thing to note, we recorded this in my kitchen and my chairs are really quite creaky, so apologies for that. 
We chat about a recent article she co-wrote for The Conversation, as well as Orchestras Live, an organisation that brings world-class performances to communities in the UK. So do check the links for more information. Here's my chat with Simone. Well, thanks for coming today, all the way from Cardiff. Thanks. You started your musical career training as a violinist at Royal Welsh College of mm-hmm. Music and Drama. So what prompted you to delve into the research that you're embarking upon now? And do you want to tell us a little bit about that research? Yeah, so my research is looking at the relationship between occupational stress, coping and well-being in musicians and performing artists as well. Um, and I got into it because I started to think that I had performance anxiety and I found the conservatory environment quite stressful. Um, and I went to, I thought, sports, uh, sports people always would have a psychologist. So I went to see a sports psychologist yeah. and he's also uh, an academic and he suggested I could research it as a topic. Um, initially, I thought, no, I still want to be a violinist, <laughs> and that's the route I'm going down. But I thought about it for a bit, and then I thought, actually, sounds quite interesting. Um, yeah. So that's how I got into my research. Wow. And did you find it helpful talking to a sports psychologist? Yeah, really helpful. So he gave me some strategies and put together a program for me. It was quite short. Um, and it was things like you know, making a plan for your practice, writing down things that had gone well that day, um, writing down things that you wanted to improve the next day and just keeping a bit more of a detailed log and then also some strategies for relaxation mm. um, like progressive muscle relaxation and then thinking about like warming up for practice so just being a bit more mindful of what you do in your practice what I found when I was at Sydney Con especially was you'd get people who'd say oh, I practiced for 10 hours today <laughs> They'd get up and play in string performance class and they'd just completely like flip out on stage. Yeah. And I, I guess it would come from not preparing yeah, exactly. adequately. Yeah, so I think practicing is one thing and being able to play your instrument and the technique involved in that, but performance is a different skill. So if you can think what skills do you need for performing, um, so that might be like visualising what the room's going to look like, people that might be in there just thinking about those kinds of things as well yeah that was something I I did and has that helped you in your because you still are a freelance violinist although I guess your research takes up a lot of your time and also coming to London to see me (laughs) (laughs) but the times that you do practice do you find that your approach is different having done this research. Yeah, I plan things much more, so I don't have very much time to practice. So I will think, okay, I've got 20 minutes and this is how I'm going to use it. And I'll think, okay, I'm going to do three minutes warming up and then I'm going to look at this section for 10 minutes, this section for 10 minutes, and then I'm going to stop. What's your warm-up routine? I like to do just some intonation exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, and also some like bowing and just practice straight bows. Straight bows. Straight bows. Like what we get our eight-year-olds to <laughs> <Exactly>. do. <laughs> Still practicing straight bows. Haven't perfected it. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing to tell your students, isn't it? Because like sometimes they can get a little bit sour that they have to do this. It's yeah. Like, I still have to do this. Even at my age. Exactly. And some scales depending on what key the piece might be in. I like doing bowing exercises. Yeah, I think that really helps to kind of like just warm up and mm. get, get the sound from yeah. your instrument. Yeah. yeah. I like what you said about relaxation methods. What exactly does that entail? So like you take like a, a small muscle group and you like tense that muscle for like a few seconds and then you relax it and it's very purposeful and can work through your whole body. And it's just really relaxing. How do you do it for a group of muscles that you can't, necessarily control yeah just kind of like thinking about it oh okay yeah. just being conscious yeah exactly so for example a group of muscles in my back yeah How... <laughs> <laughs> just make a face exactly. hope for the best i try and do stretches to my wrists because i think that's quite important yeah and shoulders definitely and neck as well yeah yeah especially for violin right yeah yeah, lots of shoulder injuries. It's so easy to get tension though, when you're holding a violin. How do you find working as an academic, as a researcher, compared with what you used to do at um, the Royal Welsh? 
Um, I think a lot of the um, there's a lot of similarities between the two environments in that it's people who are very good at what they do and they're kind of aiming for this level of perfection. Mm. Um, and it's quite it's a high pressured environment. So as a researcher, you might be expected to publish and get <laughs> lots of publications under your belt. So there's lots of similarities between the environments. For me, I enjoy the research environment. I think that suits me more. I am more academic. What's the scope of your research? How long do you have to do it? For? Um, so I'm part time. Um, so I'm aiming for about five years. Uh, but I have up to nine years to complete it. Uh, wow. I don't want it to take that long. <laughs> nine years. <laughs> You'll be old by then. Exactly, really old. Yeah. And I feel like the research won't be new anymore. Well, yeah, yeah, it's true. I suppose the stuff that you found out early on, by the time you write it all up. Yeah, you do have to update things. Yeah. So speaking of publication, you recently had... Um, an article come out on The Conversation. Yes. You state that musicians and athletes can learn from each other when coping with stress. What sort of athletic qualities do you think musicians could adopt in order to cope and vice versa, really? Yeah. Because, I mean, I, both, I suppose they're both high-pressure situations but of different sorts. What could they learn from yeah. each other? I think musicians should think of themselves as athletes because... What we're doing is very physically demanding. Um, so quite often you're thinking about the kind of expressive qualities of your playing, but not so much of the fact that you're putting a lot of physical stress on your body. So making sure that you kind of look after your body and you exercise and you do warm up and maybe even think about cooling down exercises after practice. Oh yeah, of course. Um, so just thinking about like physical strategies you can use. And then the psychological strategies that the sports, 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 sports. <laughs> athletes, athletes. That's the one. Psychological strategies that athletes might use. Yeah. So things like the ones I've discussed before. So it might be things like visualization. If you're memorizing a piece, like thinking through like how you're going to memorize it and planning that out. Mm. I suppose I always think about this when I watch something like the Olympics, and you watch divers or yeah. gymnasts do something where they've got one shot yeah and it all has to happen in momentum doesn't yeah. it so I guess because you can't break it down as you would like with a musical passage you have to visualize all the actions on top of each other yeah so I suppose would you say that would help a larger musical gesture yeah, I think there's different kind of tactics that you would use for different parts. So you might start with like breaking things down specifically, mm. but then kind of start to think about the overall gesture that you want and the emotional um, the affect that you want to portray to your audience. Like the three octave shift in the Sibelius Piccolo. <laughs> <laughs> that risky one. Just think about it as one flowing movement. <laughs> One flowing movement from one parallel bar to the next. Exactly. Well, that'll make it easy for all the violinists out there who play Sibelius in the show. What do you think um, athletes could benefit from um, learning from musicians? Um, I think in, in athletics, just like in music, you're thinking of your identity quite a lot. It's, um, you might have been training for a sport for quite a long time, just like a musician's been playing for a long time. I think... Um, as a musician, you have quite a lot of opportunities to play different genres of music, maybe chamber music, orchestral things, solo repertoire, and that can give you quite a breadth um, of experience. So I think if you're an athlete, finding kind of different different sports that you might enjoy, um, different ways of, kind of expressing your kind of love for the sport, um, mm. that's a really good idea. And versatility as well. Yeah, exactly. So developing a diverse skill set. Yeah. Um, so for athletes, your career can be quite short. Um, so you might retire in your 30s. So it's making sure that you've got other skills that you can fall back on when you transition out of, the, out of that sport. Mm. Um, having other qualifications, other interests yeah. that you can use. I suppose that comes into music as well. Because we, I remember Aaron mentioned this in a previous episode how people say, 
oh, I don't know what else I could do. But actually, you do have a diverse set of skills yeah. working in such a specialised field. Yeah. But you just might not realise them. Exactly. Yeah, because if you've, got, if you've done orchestral work, you've worked with a really big team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just things like if you're a freelance musician, you've got to organise yourself, get yourself to places on time, make sure you've practised, you've got everything you need, like your instrument. <laughs> Once I forgot my violin for something. Did you really? <laughs> How long was it until you realised? Um, not very long. Okay. I was like, oh, many like... things have been. <laughs> you forgot your <laughs> instrument. I think it would be pretty obvious if I forgot my cello. I've Well, I mean, I've gone to that point now where if I'm going somewhere without my cello, yeah. when I came to meet you in Brixton before, I was like, I don't feel like I've got everything. Yeah. <laughs> I've gotten used to now going to pubs after rehearsals yeah. and, and concerts, like finding where's the cello corner. Exactly. I'm going to keep this <laughs> It's organisational scouting kind of skills. Yeah. Reconnaissance yeah. skills is pretty exactly. large. Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose a sports person, they would, a, a lot of them would get into education, wouldn't they? Yeah, lots of people Outreach. get into coaching. Well. Yeah. And because I just think if you've got something so specialised, like you learn how to run 100 metres in less than 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'd, you'd just be, you'd obviously be very diligent, would you? Yeah. To exactly. channel that in some way. Yeah. Yeah, thinking of ways you can kind of help a new generation to enjoy that as well, mm. passing those skills on. And I guess that's important for music as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, making sure that there's that appreciation for music in the future. How did you find it going from a freelance schedule to, well, I guess you wouldn't really say you had a normal job, would you? No. <laughs> because you still have to plan your PhD yeah, time. exactly. And you also mentioned to me before that you work at Cardiff University. So I'm a systematic reviewer. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is um, we are reviewing the current evidence base and the particular project I'm working on is children's social care. So we're reviewing that and looking at best practice in the sector and how that can be applied and then gaps in the evidence base for research in the future. So that's one aspect of my week. And then <laughs> I'm doing my PhD, which is very independent, much like being a musician. Mm. Um, so I have my supervisors for guidance, but they, on a day-to-day basis, they very much let me decide what I'm going to do. And then I'll see them probably once a month for a formal meeting to catch up with my PhD and sometimes in between as well. So planning that, I think being a musician has definitely helped me to plan out my day um, in that respect and kind of short-term tasks where I need to be in maybe two weeks time or a month's time for an assessment so yeah um, making sure I've got everything in hand and then I teach as well so fitting that into my schedule I do in the evenings <laughs> so it's lots... just work all the time basically <laughs> but I am I'm quite um I'm quite diligent about finishing on time so if I'm doing my PhD, I will start at 9 and I have to finish by 5.30 mm-hmm. to make sure I do have some free time. Yeah. Because um, I'm researching well-being, I feel like <laughs> I should apply it to myself. Well, that's, it's great to have that regularity, yeah. I suppose, um, because then you're more in control of dictating a balance exactly. in your yeah. life. And I try to keep my weekends free from work to so make sure I've got time for myself. But finding something that works for you is important. Do you do yoga and Pilates? I do yoga. Yeah, I do hot yoga. It's 37 degrees. It's very hot. Um, but I really enjoy it. It's supposed to be, because it's warm, it helps with flexibility. The breathing helps for yoga. Yeah. I, I've said it before on the podcast that I find it helps with my, um, with phrasing, actually. Yes. Yeah. yeah. If you think about how a wind player has to obviously breathe before they play something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really easy as a string player not to breathe mm-hmm. because we don't have to breathe no. to, to play a phrase. So you kind of forget that your breath helps to shape a phrase. Yeah. We can chew gum at the same time as playing. <laughs> so it's very easy to forget. Have a chat. <laughs> the audience can feel it if you're not breathing. Mm. It's a bit stressful. <laughs> yeah. It's very well holding their breath as yeah. well. <laughs> so you're a trustee. For so, yeah. orchestras live. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. Um, so I've been a trustee for a couple of years since 2016, and orchestras live is a charity 
um, which is about taking um, orchestras to places which are um, defined as culturally underserved by the Arts Council. So orchestras don't go there very often. They don't have access to live orchestral music particularly. Mm. Um, so Orchestras Live partners with um, music hubs and orchestras and develops programmes. So they help to produce programmes um, and then they take those into communities. So it might be um, they've developed some relaxed programme formats um, which have been very much about inclusion and also um, about engaging new audiences in classical music. So recently they won an RPS Music Award um, for a project which is called Classically Yours mm -hmm. and that was about developing new audiences in uh, the East Riding of Yorkshire area. That was a partnership with uh, Manchester Camerata and Symphonia Fever. Mm -hmm. They worked alongside with to produce um, different types of uh, concerts. And they also work with um, concert promoters in those areas to help develop um, new audiences and help to make that a sustainable mm. future. And diversifying the, the audience. Yeah, exactly. Making sure that people know that classical music's for them, it's mm. not just for the elite, it's for everybody. Yeah. Making it accessible and open to people, feeling that they can approach it. It's not that you have to be an expert in classical music to yeah. enjoy it. For sure. I think, I, I definitely know people that are being put off by classical music because they don't know what to say. Yeah. Or they think, oh, I think we mentioned this maybe even in our first episode, we talked about the anxiety around how to approach classical music. Yeah, and you don't know the rules of going yeah. to a concert. Like, you know, if you're new to classical music, when do you clap? Um, mm -hmm. You could be thinking about that, like, oh, no one's clapped at this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no clapping, unless it's the third moment of Chike's steps. Then it's loud because it's an honest mistake. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very daunting, isn't it? Like, I suppose with anything unknown. Yeah, I think it's because you don't have the language to talk about it and you don't know... Uh, you might not know specifically what you're listening for, but every you can you can relate to classical music. It might make you feel a certain way. And yeah, that's you can talk about that. Exactly. Or not talk about it even. Exactly. So where can people find out more about Orchestras Live? Um, so we have a website. We can post a link to that. Great. Thank you. And do you work all around the country? Um, so it's based in in England. Um, and there's. Not really a lot going on in London because there's lots of music already in mm. London, so it's kind of outside of London, yeah. They have quite a wide geographical spread. So each episode, we have a segment about weird gigs. What's the weirdest gig you've ever done, or have you come across anything unusual in your research? I was thinking about a gig I did quite recently, which was Last Night of the Proms theme. And it was really good fun. So in the in the audience, they had some really big flags already and some tiny flags. So before the audience got there, and then kind of halfway through, they dropped loads of balloons. <laughs> and, and then a little bit later, they dropped some confetti. And a bit more after that, they dropped more confetti. <laughs> so was, and then they started waving flags and throwing balloons around, throwing them into the audience. Oh my god! Into the orchestra. So the balloons, the confetti were over the orchestra. Yeah. So it was it was kind of everywhere. Uh, <laughs> oh no! So you're playing and you know potentially stabbing balloons exactly. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Confetti in the sound holes. Um, I didn't get any, but could have been a risk. For a double bassist, for sure. Yeah. They have large sound holes. <laughs> <laughs> My husband was an extra on The Great Gatsby. Oh. Um, there's a scene with an orchestra playing in the ballroom, and um, and they got all these extras from Sydney Con who could mime oh. and play instruments and stuff. But there was confetti, yeah. So it just went everywhere, yeah. and including in Mark's face. And so then, I think in the Sydney humidity, his seam opened up. And then I was like, what's all this confetti doing enough of that? <laughs> oh, no. When I was in a, a youth orchestra concert, um, there was a bee flying around the orchestra and it dived straight into somebody's violin <gasps> in the middle of the concert. <laughs> and we could just hear this, like, muffled buzzing <laughs> all the way through. But at least it didn't sting anyone. 
No, it was kind of in a safe place then. Very loud and safe place. It didn't survive the concert, unfortunately. Shock. So, yeah. <laughs> Don't do that if you're a bee. <laughs> <laughs> Don't recommend it. <laughs> So we have a question that we ask all our guests, which you might know about already, but if you didn't work in music, what would you do? I decided I would be a holiday tester, because I just like the sound of staying on a beach all day, I like the beach, I like the sea, Oh, that sounds trying much. different hotels. How does one get into becoming a holiday tester? I don't know, I feel like just like someone's going to call me up about an orchestra concert, maybe <laughs> one day they'll phone me. Would you like to test this holiday for us? Maybe you need to get into mystery shopping. Yeah. Maybe and then the work your way up the ladder. Yeah. First become like a Nando's tester. <laughs> I'd quite like to do that, actually. That sounds like, yeah. And then work your way up to holidays. That sounds awesome. But I'm thinking if you've got the skill set, as you mentioned, yeah. from all, all your experience being a freelance musician and a researcher, you could make it happen. I could. I should look into this. I could do some, do some research. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this. That's okay. Yeah. It's been fun. It has been fun. I've enjoyed it. And it's been very informative as well. Good. Thanks so much, Simone, for talking to us. Now, Simone kindly sent us in some tips for reducing your performance anxiety. So, number one, develop a pre-performance routine. This could be a specific warm-up routine, including exercises on and away from your instrument. Having a routine will help you feel in control of your performance. For me, this is star jumps. If, I feel, if I'm feeling nervous, I do star jumps in the yeah, green room. Really? Yeah, it just gets my... And some people say, oh, but doesn't that make you more nervous because it gets your heart rate up? But... It seems to work for me. I enjoy doing that. Number two, breathing exercises. Exercises where the exhale is longer than the inhale can reduce the fight or flight response. Number three, try physical relaxation exercises, as mentioned in the interview, like progressive muscle relaxation, yoga, pilates, or stretches. If trying progressive muscle relaxation, you can find scripts online to help you guide you through each muscle group. Number four, keep a list of things that you've done well in practice and performance. Reading this can be a reminder of all the work you put in and help to reassure you. I think that's a great idea. I, that's never occurred to me before. Yeah. I think I mentioned before I've done that with lessons and I found that really helpful, but I think I should do that with personal practice as well. Because sometimes you just forget. Well, I, I never write down the good things, just write <laughs> what <laughs> yeah, I need to do true, next. Yeah. Number five, remember you're not alone. Lots of performers experience anxiety. Talk to other musicians about the strategies they use. Very important. I think this is why we're doing the podcast. You're not alone. We're all in it together. All so. in the same boat. <laughs> and number six, be aware that some level of nerves can help you feel alert and perform at your best. Which I think is very true because there's a lot to be said about adrenaline really getting you through what's going on yeah. on stage. I normally try and tell myself I'm nervous, not scared, because I think nerves is good. Nerves mm. gives me, yeah, adrenaline, it gives me um, super concentration and makes me really focused, but I'm not scared. So scared would be the negative side of it. Yeah, so. and just remembering that you can do it. I tried power poses before an audition recently. Oh, yeah, I've heard yeah. about this. They did a study on world leaders, and supposedly the thing they all have in common they have low cortisol levels, they have a very low stress level, and high testosterone. And so to improve that, you can lift your arms up and put your hands in a powerful stance, either on your hips or up in the air, lift your chin up, and that is supposedly a pose of triumph that animals show. So oh. I did this for a minute in a mirror, in the bathroom mirror, before an audition, and I think it boosted my confidence. But I think also physically it would help you as well, just, you know, clear your breathing passages and stuff, open your shoulders, yeah. that's what, I guess... What a lot of yoga is based on strong like stance, strong poses to allow you to be at your best. That's great, thanks, Simone. Um, she's also given a list of books on managing performance anxiety. I'm gonna put them in the link box below, but one of them I actually have and I would recommend as well is The Inner Game of Music by Barry Green and Timothy Galway. So, check those out if you're interested. And if any listeners have their own tips for reducing their own performance anxiety, we'd love to hear them. 
and anything a little bit odd, we always like those too. <laughs> time for this episode's weird gig. Today's weird gig has been sent in by viola player Joe Fisher. Here's Joe's story. I got an email from the Royal Academy of Music bookings department asking for a solo instrument to play for a proposal. Unlucky for them, a viola player was first to reply. (laughs) (laughs) So after numerous emails with a soon-to-be groom and a very carefully drawn out map of Hyde Park, I had to walk around the grassy plains pretending to be a busker, working my way towards the happy couple. When the groom proposed, I was to play Ave Maria. Now, I couldn't carry my case with me and play, was already wearing a full dinner jacket and bow tie on a hot summer's day. So I called upon a dear friend of mine that I knew was nearby to protect my belongings. So while I was playing to another couple, Greensleeves, it's the only piece I knew by memory. <laughs> I had to tell them to not give me any money and to just play along with it. So I also missed out on a lot of tips. I then made my way to the soon-to-be engaged couple, a bit sweaty, and played green sleeves just superbly. <laughs> I hadn't discussed with the proposer how the next part was going to work. So after a very awkward silence, I just held out my hand as a sign for money. He then reached into his bag and then... She tried to stop him <laughs> because she felt like I didn't deserve the money. Oh, don't give me to the buskers. Oh, dear. But he insisted, and then, hurrah, as he's looking into his bag, I guess that was my cue to start playing Ave Maria. Now, I said the green seeds was the only piece I knew by memory, and this was true. So for this performance, I had printed out a small copy of the music, <laughs> business card size, that I had stuck to the scroll of my viola. As I started, he pulled out the ring and proposed. There was hugs, kisses, tears of joy, which was great, because whilst they were distracted, my music fell off my scroll and flew away. So I carried on being the great musician that I am. Mistakes all over the place, but still with 100% conviction. As I finished, they were still hugging, so I leant in and congratulated them and quickly scarpered back to my case. After reconvening with my case guarder, I realised that I had never discussed payment, so I let the buzz die down before <laughs> oh, no. creeping back. I just saw him walk over, uh, ran up to me to pay, and he was so chuffed, he tipped me an extra 50%. So I treated my case guarder to a three-course dinner to thank him for looking after my belongings. Best gig ever. I've still got the business card of music in my wallet, and I carry it around to this day to remind me of the weirdest gig I've ever had. Now to some upcoming concerts. It's summer here in the UK and that means it's festival time. So this is the time of year when you can attend some amazing concerts in some pretty spectacular places in the country. And we thought we'd share a few of them with you. From the iconic BBC proms to operas and tents, there's something for everybody. Firstly, a brand new festival this year is the Waterperry Opera Festival, started by singer Guy Withers. The dates for this festival are the 17th to the 19th of August, and I'm really happy that Guy is going to chat to us about the festival. Hello. Hi, Guy. Hello, how's it going? Good, thanks. You're live on Musicians Weekend. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so, we've got Water Perry Opera coming up on the 17th to the 19th of August, and we wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the festival, please. So Waterperry Gardens and Estate is a, a garden centre, horticultural college and uh, country house in Oxford, about an hour from London, up the M40. Uh, it dates back to Norman times uh, and has a Tudor and Regency house and uh, kind of decades and decades of uh, cultural heritage and artistic heritage and uh, that's where we're putting on an opera festival basically. Brilliant. And the productions you're putting on is Don Giovanni and That's right, yes. Mansfield Park by Jonathan Dove. That's right, yeah. Uh, so the, the estate itself has uh, so many amazing spaces. It has a 400-seater amphitheatre, outside outdoor amphitheatre, which is amazing. 
and uh, that's where putting on our production of Don Giovanni uh, with orchestra. Uh, uh, with some amazing uh, singers and emerging talent, uh, directed by Laura Attridge and conducted by uh, Bertie Bajant. Um, our Mansfield Park, uh, which is an adaption of uh, Jane Austen's novel by Jonathan Dove, the British composer, is being put on in the ballroom at uh, Waterbury House. And really loads of other events as well. So uh, a, a family show called Peter Rabbit's Musical Adventure and uh, Hander Bridge, which is a, uh, a jazz opera by Samuel Barber, uh, workshops and free events and masterclasses and talks and all that sort of stuff. So it's sort of like a, a festival in, in the real sense of the world. Well, that sounds brilliant, Guy. And we wondered if you could tell us how you went about creating this festival. So, as I said, the estate itself has uh, like decades worth of cultural heritage. So, for many years, the estate held an arts festival called Art in Action. Uh, it used to be lots of visual arts, kind of sculpture, painting, that sort of stuff. And unfortunately, it closed a few years ago. But it was so popular, there was a massive community who wanted sort of cultural engagement. And the estate asked us, me and my team, would you please put on some opera for us? Would you make some sort of music programming, uh, kind of create some participatory events? So we we're like, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, we started from scratch and we looked at what the amazing spaces of Waterbury could offer about in terms of what we could create. Um, and then we set up a charity, uh, an organisation, put together a team, cast all these shows, decided on a on a programme, and, and yeah, this is our first year, 2018. Well, brilliant. Well, I hope lots of our listeners can go and visit. And where can they find out more about the festival? So uh, go to waterburyoffestival.co.uk uh, and you can book there. Um, unfortunately, already Mansfield Park is sold out, so that's really sad. But, but great for you. <laughs> but there are tickets for Don Giovanni uh, left and all loads of other things. And there's also free events, so you can just turn up and come and see stuff. And to be honest, the gardens are worth seeing regardless. So, yeah, come visit, visit us on our website, but also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And today, actually, our festival trailer for Don Giovanni just went live, so you can check that out as well. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Guy, for talking to us. That's okay, no worries. Thanks, okay, guys. Bye. Bye. From the 1st to the 31st of August, there is the Snake Malting Proms in Suffolk. As I mentioned, it runs for the entire month of August. There's loads of incredible concerts, including the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain. Amazing. <laughs> the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. And I mentioned before, I have a friend from New Zealand staying with me, and part of the reason why she's here is she is performing as part of the Britain Peers Orchestra, performing with Marin Alsop conducting Romeo and Juliet, the ballet by Prokofiev. And Britain Peers is an incredible scheme for young musicians. A lot of them are recent graduates, um, young professionals, where musicians from all over the world attend a course where they rehearse and perform in an incredible venue. Imogen, you've done Britain Peers I did Peers it last before, year. Right? The Right of Spring by Stravinsky was our main piece. And it was a fantastic week. Yeah, because I think it's really great for the participants. They get to rehearse something with other amazing musicians and conductors in such detail. So we'll post a link to the concerts that are happening up at Snake Maltings. I've played there myself. It's, it's a really nice venue and there's also nice shops and cafes and uh, things to do there. The festival I wanted to mention is the Southern Music Festival, which is an annual music festival in the heart of Nottinghamshire. So this year it's from the 22nd of August to the 27th. And this classical festival is the brainchild of brilliant baritone Marcus Farnsworth, who is actually head chorister at Southern Minster. You can look on their website at a huge variety of events going on during that week. Uh, for example, there's lots of chamber concerts throughout the town. They have a main concert on the Saturday night of Elgar's Cello Concerto, performed by the one and only Sheku Kanemason. SKM. <laughs> and the Sunday morning, they have a Eucharist in, in the Minster. And my boyfriend actually played in this festival a couple of years ago, and he said that was pretty much his favourite event of the festival, because it's just the most incredible choir. The orchestra is just top musicians, and it's just a really special event. So the whole week is really brilliant. So I'd recommend checking that out. Great. And if you're having a staycation in London, why don't you check out Tete-a-Tete Opera Festival? There are several different opera performances going on. The one I'm going to go to is by composer Alex Mills, and it's his debut opera 
called Dear Mary Stopes and it's based on the controversial sex manual Married Love that came out in 1918 and all the emotionally charged letters she received asking for advice. (laughs) So I think that sounds quite fun. I'm going to check that one out. Thanks to Chris Rowe who composed our brilliant jingle and to our special guests Simone and Guy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this episode, please send it to a couple of friends and leave us a lovely review on iTunes. See you next time.